don't think this, there is a little bit of thought that goes into these podcasts. And I was just thinking before I went to sleep last night, with so much going on in the world of tennis, where do we start? There is so much, look, we're not a results service, but it doesn't matter because there's so much to talk about. And then I suddenly thought, why am I even giving this any thought after what I just witnessed? Four hours and 38 minutes, two sets to love down. How can we not start this podcast by talking about Andy Murray? I mean, stop it. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. Exactly what you would expect from Andy Murray, of course. It was just him being Murray. It was, oh, it was just so much fun. I mean, look, look, it wasn't the best level of tennis, it has to be said, but you wouldn't expect that from Andy. His first best of five set match since the Australian Open 2019, where he played Bautista Agut and uh, nearly turned that one around. And yeah, I mean, two sets and a break, right? Was he a breakdown in that third, I think? Yeah, Three, one yeah. down? Um, turning it around against Nishioka, who's the sort of guy... Who, yeah, okay, he doesn't have masses of firepower, but boy, does he make you work and he makes a lot of balls and he's a bit tricky with that leftiness as well. So like, it's not an easy matchup and it's not kind of a, a good sort of... Um, tactic to play against you know if you, if you haven't played best of five and of course you know Andy with his new hip and or partially new hip and he was saying that he started off a little slow or just I mean it's just amazing it's just amazing I mean come on best moment the US Open so far of all the people that didn't need to be going to five sets didn't need to be going to nearly five hours didn't need to go through something like that look I'm not saying he could go on and win this title even though on the US Open website there was Andy Murray dark horse question mark headline and I don't think anyone's seeing him as a dark horse despite <laughs> everything he's done but let but, but we all enjoy getting carried away why not we love get yes but after nearly five hours I mean what is left whoever got through what is left for the second round it was it was incredible but you know the most worrying thing about that match around the third set was the lack of noise from Andy Murray from a lot of people when they go calm and they are peaceful that's when they're at the most dangerous but I think you get more worried about Murray the quieter he goes and for a big chunk of time he was flat and there was zero noise yeah, it was kind of a bit strange, wasn't it? When you think it's your first match back at a slam and it did seem to take him a long time to get going. In fact, he only really got going in the nick of time, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's like the time was running out. You kind of have to do something here. But he was saying he was trying to save the um, the energy a little bit, which he was saying that a lot of the guys do when they're young, playing best of five sets, just because it's a little bit daunting. Um, and actually what you really want to try and do is uh, just focus on it as if it's a best of three set match and then you just try and hold on if you're still going you just try and find something and dig deep but um yeah so it was quite interesting to see that for him to say that he'd kind of reverted back to that but yeah it was absolutely the nick of time <laughs> he started playing oh well, his match point down wasn't he 77 unforced errors 59 winners double figures for aces and double faults first time these guys had faced each other and it was just slightly strange because Arthur Ashe Stadium, where he won his first Grand Slam title in 2012, it was empty. And actually speaking to his mother, Judy, who was working with us on Five Live that night, she said that maybe that came into it a little bit. The fact that, you know, you go out there and there is there is no one there. It's a completely empty stadium, barring the players that started to appear. I mean, the look around. It's weird. They were no, There's no one there, but the people that were there were some of the best tennis players 
in world tennis, including his brother Jamie, who looked very, very nervous. And I should say that Mum Judy, she wasn't. She joined us after the match. She just needed to be there. She need, she said she turned the sound off because she didn't want to hear any criticism of her child. <laughs> so commentary was turned off, and like everyone else that supports him absolutely going through the ringer oh yeah i mean can you imagine i don't know how judy looks so good to be honest it's uh yeah it's tough and i I think a lot of people say it's tougher watching than it is playing because you have no control and you just you're not doing anything there's nothing to sort of get the nervous energy out apart from fist pumping and shouting and whatever and but like you're not you're not doing anything if you're running around and sweating you get some of that adrenaline flowing but yeah really cool to have kind of judy's immediate reaction from that match I think fairly sensible because can you imagine if she was commentating on it (laughs) which I think would be great it'd be very interesting but it would be quite tough but I think it would be it would be very tough because there was points in that match and and David Law who's working with us as well at one point he said this is the worst tennis I've ever seen Andy Murray play it wasn't you talked about the level it wasn't good but he's and I said that's a big statement and he said yes but this is this is the worst I've ever seen him play and then you can imagine in that instance, if Judy was there, and David it is a perfectly valid comment to make from what he's watching, but then he got his mum sitting to your left or right. So do you temper what you're saying? Do you still go ahead with what you're saying? I mean, that's that's her child. <laughs> At the end of the day, you strip everything away. That's her child out there on court who is hurting. Nearly five hours. He has been through so much and he's in pain down there. Oh, I think pain in a lot of areas, for sure. I mean, I can't believe he turned it around. He turned it around so many times, a breakdown in the fifth as well, and just responded so, so well. And you've got to feel for Nishioka because, you know, Nishioka comes from a nation that has a lot of hope and there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. I mean, Nishikori isn't here, uh, who would be the, the Japanese number one. And, you know, that would be a, a really tough one. But you mentioned all of the, the famous faces watching on from the world of tennis we normally get loads of celebrities at us open don't we but from the world of tennis um and it was it was fascinating yeah they were just sat on their balconies watching there was one shot of grigor dimitrov and he he looked like he'd been living in his (laughs) his room he had his top off his hair was all over the place as if he'd just woken up it was six o'clock in the morning so there's one thing i think kind of he was treating it like it was almost a hotel balcony if you know what I mean, yeah, you're on yeah. holiday and it's a hotel balcony. You're just there. You just you know, pop some shorts on or whatever. You think, no, no, you're actually like in an arena <laughs> on TV. This <laughs> was I, I, that I did find that interesting, and I, I think Naomi Osaka was watching as well. well I mean, everyone just loads. Of look, name watching. a name, and they were probably there. And did you see that Yanko Tipsarovich has been decorating? the boxes of both his charge, Philip Krajinovic, and his countryman, Novak Djokovic. He's laid red carpets outside the front door, so they approach on their own little red carpet. And then he's put flowers on the balcony. So lots of little flowers outside, just to give it, just to give it some homely touches. Well, I'm sure he's expecting them to be there for a while, right? Like, <laughs> that's, that's it. Um, and that was what was quite funny, actually, when Andy finished... 
I think he'd been there for so long because it was nearly five hours long to like tidy up. It was almost like tidying up his room. It was like quite methodical and taking quite a while to get everything. By the time he got to the interview, it took ages. Right? I swear the next match would have just been waiting. Like we're desperate to get on court. But (laughs) he, um, yeah, it was quite funny. He'd really sort of bedded in like, this is where I live now. Four hours in. (laughs) This is just, this is my bedroom. And that's the other thing about the suites that are, given to the top 32 seeds and past champions once you're at there's a waiting list to get in the seats it's not it's a little bit like when you check out of a hotel and I don't know you check out by 11 o'clock and you get into reception you say look can I have an extra hour or can I have a couple of hours because my flight or whatever's not till later it's like no you can't because there's someone with their bags packs waiting to get into your suite because people have put their names down on a list you're out you get out oh so it's not going in ranking order But they're waiting. Basically, there's always someone waiting to take the suite. So once you're done, you can't just chill out. Look, you might want to get out the bubble quickly anyway, but it's not as though you can just hang around. And I saw Diego Schwartzman after his defeat to Cameron Norrie sitting on his balcony. But who knows how long he had because someone else would have been informed that a suite was about to become available and, and they can get in it. Knocking on the door. Can you imagine? I just kind of assumed, because you've got the top 32 and past champions, and then I just thought that once a seed gets knocked out, number 33 moves in. Well, yeah, but, that, but but that's still your waiting oh, list. The, these yeah, but, people... is that the, but is it in ranking order, the list? Or I'm is it just sure, first come, first Yeah, because it's a mixture of... No, no, no. It's a mixture. It will go in ranking order. And obviously, you've got to mix in the past champions if there are any that haven't been allocated a suite there. But there's always there is always someone waiting for you to lose to get into your suite. I think it's possibly the best bit of the situation that we're in. Like, not that there are many great bits. Obviously, they would much rather have a crowd and not be in the suites. But it's, um, I think it's quite cool to be able to hang out there, be comfortable there. You know, you've got your own space, so you're going you're gonna to feel nice yeah. and comfortable. And also be able to just have Arthur Ashe in front of you. And, of course, they put Andy Murray on to, <laughs> for you to watch. So you've got your entertainment sorted. And, yeah, I think that's quite a nice perk that I'm sure players would love to have <laughs> other times. Kick all the corporates out. We don't need them. And uh, we'll just have the players there. Did you see that uh, Diego Schwartz from ninth seed lost to the Brit Cameron Norrie? And during the match, Diego Schwartz at one point started speaking Spanish to Champa and he was really unhappy and he looked really unsettled and then his form dipped and Norrie got into the match. And everyone was, you know, when you try and speculate, what was it? Was it something? Was it a call? Was it something with a towel? Because everyone seems to have a question or an issue with towels. It turned out he was annoyed with the noise that Dominglot in particular was making within the Arthur Ashe Stadium in support of Cameron Norrie. Oh, wow. Oh, Dom. Dom can get quite loud, <laughs> I must say. Was it that bad? I didn't watch I, it. I guess what you have is you don't have the thousands of fans in there, but those in there are showing their support. And remember, we had the Battle of the Brits during the summer, the team event, when the whole point was to be as loud as you could from the sidelines to support your teammate at the time. So the Brits had come on, I think Jamie Murray was there, Dom Inglot was there, and Dom was just getting really loud. And Diego Schwartzman was a little bit like, hang on a second, this is not... In- and, and Cameron was saying, well, look, they just, they just came out to support me because that is what we've seen because there are no fans. The players are finding their way onto these courts to, to support their... their their countrymen, their their teammate in whatever sport, their you know their friend. It's uh, I think it, it, I think it's quite nice to see. It's very unusual, but I think it's quite nice. Do you think that 
there have been less long matches and less comebacks. I mean, of course, Andy Murray's the focus. Um, but you were saying about how the crowd might have impacted him at the beginning as well, just starting off that little bit flat. But for me, I, I mean, I haven't been able to, to, to watch everything. I mean, you just can't watch everything anyway. But looking at all of the results coming through, it just feels like there are a lot more comfortable results for the first round of a slam than there would be normally. You know, we would get, I mean, I know Andy Murray's was an epic match and I know you don't get anything going past, obviously, tiebreak in the final set here at the US Open, but I don't know. I'm not basing this on anything, to be honest. I probably could have just looked it up <laughs> and counted it up <laughs> and compared it to last year for our listeners. But anyone who's new, you'll know we operate on loose facts, not actual facts. <laughs> well, do we? Or oh, no, I... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know we do the podcast together, but we don't do everything together. <laughs> you listen to my loose facts. No, I just anecdotally, it feels like <laughs> there are a lot of sort of three sets quite comfortable. It's almost, you know, when you're two sets down, you, you need something, you know, you hit a good shot, you need that crowd to really lift you. You just need that bit of help. And I think players talk about that all the time, how the crowd lift. I think those particular situations, when you're down... To, to dig your heels in and turn things around. You might see your fans in the crowd, for example, waving your flag. They might be chanting. They might be this. And you think, wow, you know, they're here. They're in New York. They want to watch me. And, you know, those sorts of things, they do just give you that, okay, right, if, I'm, if I've only got three out of ten left, I'm going to get that three out of me. I'm going to be down to zero by the end of the match, that sort of thing. And I, just, I don't know, do you feel like that? Or it just it just feels like there have been, yeah, there have been a few, but it's been relatively comfortable, I think. Yeah, I haven't got anything to compare from last year to this year, but what we did notice after day one is that, especially in the men's game, because the big thing was about going from best of three to best of five and fitness because no one has really played. I mean, for Nishioka, for example, this was his first match since lockdown. You know, a lot of players are coming in that situation. That a lot of the fourth and fifth sets were just, very straightforward, very one side. I'm talking six love, six ones. It wasn't, the further it went, it wasn't as competitive as you might expect, barring the Murray match with Nishioka. And then there was Yannick Sinner against Karen Hashanov, and that was pretty competitive. There were a couple of lopsided sets in favour of the Russian, but then back into the fifth, and it was very competitive until the Russian eventually came through against the Italian. But I think there haven't been that many upsets so far on the women's side, especially. A few more seeds have fallen in the men. But I think what you're noticing, it's more on the physical side of things, that maybe there's an element of the crowd not being able to give them that extra little bit. But the further it's going, some players are just like, they are spent and they are looking spent because they haven't been in this situation since Australia. And for those who weren't in Australia, maybe even before that. Yeah, and I think that also like looking at the results and how it's gone, and as you mentioned, it's kind of ab there are an abnormal amount of seeds through, I think. There haven't been as many sort of interesting upsets that we'd normally see because I think I'm sure we talked about this or I did um a few weeks ago about the the no crowd and that it would hurt the underdog a bit more because often the underdog will walk on court against somebody some sort of superstar they'll start playing great and they'll be in there and then the crowd really get involved and it becomes this whole thing and then it almost runs away from you and you can't really do so much ab about it whereas when it's cold and sterile and there's no crowd, I think it just it just boils down to your level. And I think it's 
I don't think that it's a leveler. I think it's completely opposite. I think it exaggerates the difference in levels because you're just coming, you're just down to pure tennis here. There's no emotion, like, you know, well, not none, but there's less emotion. There's less sort of that wave. So for example, if you, if you're an underdog and you play, you know, a match on a stadium court and you start off well or whatever, and you just do incredibly well and and the crowd are there and then you lose, or maybe you win or you, whatever, if you then play again the next week, you, you know, you're probably going to lose. If somebody's ranked that much higher than you, they're, they're better than you and you're never going to be the favourite until you're better than they are. Um, and I just think that you get a lot more of that sort of in the moment, in the feeling, the the adrenaline that tends to take over and it just runs away from you. And I just don't think we've really seen that. But can't you flip it the other way and say that it might affect the top players? We touched on, and and Judy Murray touched on the fact that maybe Andy was slightly affected because there wasn't the crowd there. And you might come out for it. Christian may have come out against Serena Williams. And despite the fact that both American players playing in America, that 90% of the crowd would have been supporting Serena Williams and giving her that little bit of extra. These players who are used to playing in front of thousands of people, Sitspas saying he hasn't played in front of an empty stadium since he was 11. So couldn't you flip it and say that it might hinder at some point the bigger players who are not used to this lack of atmosphere? We call it. I see what you mean. I, I really, I think it's valid, but I just don't think it will work that way based on what we've seen these past couple of days. I just think that it's ultimately, there's no occasion. I mean, there is an occasion, it's the US Open and I get that, but you know, there there isn't that sense and atmosphere of occasion and that moment and whether it's destiny or, you know, whatever people kind of talk about. And with that gone, you're just playing tennis. And when it comes down to just tennis, somebody ranked 20 is going to be an awful lot better than somebody ranked 80. Now, and of course, with the men, you bring in the best of five, which enhances that even further. Now, you know, somebody ranked 80 could play at a level that could beat that person because, you know, you can do that on any given day. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm just saying that I don't, I think without that added crowd element, that extra belief that extra sense of occasion, I think it's pretty tough to actually get that challenge and get it over the line. I'm going to give you a choice of where we go next because I haven't got a clue. I mean, so much has gone on. It's quite frankly ridiculous. We're recording this on Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? It is Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday morning. It's Wednesday morning. Things were nearly afternoon. Uh, Wednesday morning, afternoon. Things are changing all the time. Right, you can now talk about the PTPA, Naomi Osaka, or COVID-19. Pick a subject. Right, okay. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about COVID, so let's leave that one for now. Okay. We can talk about it later, that's fine. Well, yeah, because we've, um, we've had now Benoit pair positive and everything that's gone with that. Right, but okay, we're not starting with that. Let's go Naomi Osaka. Okay, all right. Come on. Okay. Would you what have- happened? What, has she been doing anything? No, she's, she's had quite quiet time over mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks. Naomi Osaka, we know that she has been one to use her platform to talk about things, issues, matters that matter to her. I think it's incredible because when she came on the scene, she was so shy and quiet, almost awkward, wasn't she? When she was on court or in press, you were kind of thinking, wow, okay, she's, she's like super quiet and shy. And suddenly she is standing up for what she believes in and actually turning around as she did in Cincinnati ahead of her semi-final against Elise Mertens and says, I'm a tennis player, but before that, I'm a black woman. 
and I am more than happy to step away from this semi-final for a cause that I believe in the Black Lives Matter cause and the racial injustice she feels and something that is very big, especially in America right now. And that was a big stand to take for a young woman just saying to the sport, that's it. I'm stepping away from this match. You now can make your decision on where you take this. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And that, do you know what? That's exactly what I was going to say. The journey she has been on in, in what, a couple of years? That's basically been it. And I remember when she did an interview, it might have even been at the US Open, but an encore interview afterwards. And, you know, they try and put the microphone, you know what it's like. <laughs> they try and put the microphone close to your face so that, A, they get the right audio, but also there's sometimes a little logo they need to get in shot. Um, <laughs> they're kind of shoving it in your face. And she was physically running away from the microphone. She was trying to lean out of the way and she was just, why is this thing following me? And <laughs> the guy's like, well, we need to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> I've asked you a question. And she was so afraid of that. And to to go from somebody who was physically running away from a microphone and trying to get it away from her face to somebody who's essentially grabbing a microphone for a really impressive cause is, you know, it, it's just so impressive for her to be able to do that. It's not like she's talking about, uh, you know, necessarily like selfish things or anything like that. You know, she's trying to take a stand and um, it just, yeah, you just kind of, got to marvel at it really as you say that journey that she's been on because she's never been that outspoken about things and I think players deal with these things differently when they have things that they're sort of passionate about and believe in so Victoria Azarenka has chosen not to really talk about Belarus and things that are going on in, in there and I'm not comparing the two but it's just something that they're passionate about something that's obviously close to home that they that 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 they really believe in but yeah Osaka's just yeah she's right up there maybe it was the fact that that Forbes list came out and she was like I am a record-breaking female earning athlete I'm the record-breaking female earning athlete of all time and do you know what if it all goes wrong and I lose all my sponsors it's fine I've earned enough already <laughs> so well that was an interesting thing there was a comment on social media and you get everything on social media that said well it's easy for Osaka to say I'm not going to play and to risk everything because she's the world's highest paid female athlete and she's won grand slams but she has sponsors to think about she has responsibilities in her position of things that she has to think about, but she is so passionate about what she believes in that she now has this incredible platform that has this phenomenal reach. A little bit like we were talking about Coco Goff. I mean, she's 16 and stepping up and making a speech at a rally where she didn't know she was going to make a a speech at this rally. She just stood up and she again said, I want to use the platform that I have, a platform that she is building. Asaka is a level ahead in terms of the reach she's got at the moment. And then it was decided that the tournament, Cincinnati tournament, would be suspended on semi-final day. And we were doing it remotely, and that completely threw me on days. I mean, for the rest of the week, I, I <laughs> didn't know whether I was coming or going. I went into work saying, gosh, it's Sunday, well, it's Saturday, and I just, I gave up at that point. But then with talks with the WTA, it was decided that she said, look, I was more than happy not to play my semi-final. It wasn't just I'm going to wander back in because you've suspended it for a day, but it was decided she would play. She beat Elise Mertens. She had to withdraw from the final because of a hamstring injury. She's now come through her first round match. And interestingly, she was wearing a Brianna Taylor mask in her post-match interview. And she said, look, I've got seven masks. I want to win. And she said, it's just a shame that there are no more than seven matches, but I want to wear these masks after each win and hopefully I get to wear 
all seven. And she was asked, is it a distraction what you're doing? And she said, look, I don't think so. She said, if, if someone doesn't like me, that's absolutely fine. I'm just doing what I believe in. I'm playing great tennis at the same time. And uh, I think, look, it's incredible what she's doing to have this belief. And a lot of people would just watch others and she's actually taking action while still playing some pretty damn good tennis. Yeah, which is, yeah, as I say, it's just very impressive that she's able to, and it's not easy to do it. I know I was kind of joking saying she's got all this money and, but that with that comes the platform right? And how are you going to use it? That's your choice. You want to waste it, you can waste it. You want to use it, you can do something with it. Some people might want to wait till after their tennis career and um, do stuff afterwards, for example. And we shouldn't forget, actually, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, but, you know, we have had a sort of boycott uh, with, when it comes to Venus and Serena when it came to Indian Wells and the treatment that they received there and they just felt like it wasn't dealt with so they just said we're not playing this tournament we're not going to support this event you know you can make it a mandatory event all you want we're not going to support this event I know that has since changed it took a lot of talks and it took a long time for them to to go back there but you know that was their way of of making a strong stand at that time um, so, you know, so it's just great to see Osaka kind of joining that list of um great right I mean they're absolute legends of the sport and part of that is their is their story is their legacy as well being able to do that and yeah actually making change by them saying we're not going to play this tournament it meant that the tournament had to take a look at things had to try and readdress things had to try and get them on board to come back and play and the same for Osaka she said I'm not going to play and that made the ATP and WTA say okay well then no one's going to play and that was their response and they were very supportive of her and, and on board so it does just take that brave step from you and yourself and your personal circumstances if you have the platform of course uh and yeah i mean i think yeah all in all it was uh, you know pretty momentous event something we'll remember i think for a long time what is what strictly come dancing called in america is it oh, a different name? Uh, Dancing with the Stars. Okay, so just so our American listeners didn't suddenly think, what on earth are we talking about? They might still think that after I've explained this, but <laughs> as you know, we're doing this remotely, um, the US Open, because it's not just closed to fans, but to 99% of the media. It's just really the in-house media and a handful of others and the host broadcaster ESPN who are allowed on site. So I'm covering this and you're going to be coming up to join me for the BBC in, in Salford, and the room we're in, there's a picture on my Twitter feed, is used, it's like the Strictly Come Dancing meeting room. There's like a massive picture of a glitter ball on one wall. Right. And then on a pillar, there's, he was a legend of the entertainment industry and Bruce Forsyth, the late Bruce Forsyth, is is on a pillar on one side. And it's slightly weird, we went in, so this is your home for a couple of weeks, and you look around thinking... Okay, right. In our Strictly Come Dancing room, I guess. I can't wait. I, I saw your picture on Twitter and I'm so excited. I'm going to turn up in my sparkly leotard and I'm going to go full Strictly on the whole thing. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I don't want you to do that. Okay. Get away. <laughs> in my head, I will. Okay, in in your head, be sparkly and dancey, but just maybe don't do that. But surely, look, I don't know about <laughs> Dancing with the Stars in the States as to whether any tennis players have been on. I don't know if Andy Roddick made an appearance at some point. Who knows? Probably not. Doesn't seem to make much sense. But our American listeners can tell us, have we had any tennis-related people? I want to think, yes. Why do I think, yes, that Roddick did it? 
I don't know. Unnodic... I just picked Roddick. Or his wife. <laughs> or maybe his wife did it. I don't know. But can our American listeners tell us, have we had any tennis-related people doing it? Because we have had one in uh, Strictly Come Dancing, of course, in uh, in the yes. UK. And it was Judy yes, Murray. And Judy Murray yes. was back in the room. And she in your picture, she was sat beneath the the picture the big giant picture of of the presenters and stuff so she must have been absolutely felt right at home i'm sure she chose the bruce forsyth desk oh that was it when she came in i said judy make yourself at home because we have four socially distanced desks and when she came in i said judy just pick your desk and she gravitated towards a desk by the pillar with bruce forsyth on it and uh, yeah we had a little strictly chat but that's that's where we're doing it from so time wise we're working on a different so we're normally finishing around I guess midnight or just after UK time so it's 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 a little bit different but we haven't been you know we're we're coming into our third day and on air yet because there's been so much with the tennis and other issues we haven't even really talked about this PTPA the professional tennis players association so I want to ask you and there's lots of if you're still playing if you weren't a woman, because there's, <laughs> right. because, because there's no women at this stage. It's tough, to, it's tough to connect with this hypothetical situation. If you're in the top 500, which you were, but you're a woman, so that discounts you from this particular thing, would you have signed up for the PTPA? No, I don't think so. So if you were a male top 500 player, you wouldn't have signed no, up? No, I don't think so. Be- but why not? It's not that... What don't you believe in that they believe in? It's not that I don't necessarily think that it is a a good thing. I'd like to know more about it, I suppose. But I just don't... I don't really see how they're going to achieve what they want to achieve, really. I I don't see how this is the right way to do it. Um, And I might be completely wrong and just totally missing something. I fully accept that. So I'm not... I'm not kind of looking at them going, what on earth are they doing? I'm just trying to understand it as best as I can. And it's it's quite it's quite challenging because ultimately the players want more money and they want to be consulted more, I think. In that's the general sort they want to be involved in the decision making more, which is the, the general sort of um of feel. Am I do you is that about right, do you think? It's quite tough to decipher, to be honest. But the, the fundamentals of it, and I would have thought you would agree on on the. I would have thought that most tennis players would agree with this. They want, and again, I'm devil's advocate. I'm sitting on the fence here, but they want a voice. And would you not agree that tennis players need more of a voice? Uh, I think it's it's interesting because I think tennis operates in such a different way to other sports. So, for example, you've got sports like football and and rugby and whatever where you're just bought and sold like a piece of meat and when you're bought you're owned in its entirety you have a contract if you want to leave you can't necessarily leave um you have requirements you can't get endorsements that you want because you 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 work for the club you're employed so I can very much understand that 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 as a sport if we pick football for example that you know the players need that sort of players association that sort of voice that can fight for their their rights so that they don't get pushed around too much um but in tennis it's quite different because you're pretty autonomous you can kind of do what you want like if you don't want to play you don't have to play 
you 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 know you have a small amount of press commitments that you have to do um but you can get any endorsement that you want you can i mean i think there's some is up for debate about sort of um, sports betting companies at the moment but other than that really you can you're kind of your own person you're your own sort of freelance contractor and you get all of the freedom that comes with that you can pick which tournaments you play um yeah sure there are certain obligations you have to play you know for the women there are the mandatory events that you have to play for the men you have to play a certain amount of 500 you also have to play one of the 250s if you're a top 10 player so you know i get that there are requirements but the only penalty is kind of a fine it's not really it's not like they say well then you can't play the us open you know they don't it doesn't really work like that so i, I don't know i i feel like it kind of works both ways. Um, like you get a lot of freedom and you get to do what you want to a, a massive extent. Um, but then, yes, yeah, sure, you don't get necessarily the support and the involvement that you would like in the decision-making sort of process. So I, I just think there are pros and cons to every situation. And it's I can understand they're talking about the cons and that they want they wanted more consultation when it came to the situation with covid and new tournaments and that sort of thing they wanted more consultation even with this boycott for for 24 hours they wanted to be more involved in that process in the decision making process but um yeah i don't really know how this is going to achieve that timing wise i think everyone agrees it's not great but at the same time it has to for something like this to happen, and we've seen this picture now, which I thought was quite unusual that the picture was taken on all the branding of the USTA and everything on it, of the players on court, the initial players who had signed up for it. And there are some big names in there. I mean, we know that John Isner and Vasek Pospisil and Novak Djokovic resigned from the ATP Player Council to form this. I don't, do we call it a breakaway? Don't, do we don't, they have, well, I suppose they a have new, broken away. A new group. New group. I say yeah. new. Breakaway new. sounds quite dramatic, doesn't it? Although they have yeah. broken away, haven't they? Well, yes and no, but they're still going to play ATP events. It's very easy to say kind of, you know, that they're in charge and they're telling us what to do. But, you know, they put on the tournaments, they create the tour and then it's up to you as a player. Do you want to come and play? If you want to come and play, you can come play here for these points and these money, this money. Um, and it's up to you. If you don't, you don't have to. You can do something else. So, you know, I, I understand, you know, the fight definitely for more prize money. That was, that's been going on for a long time, but it has also dramatically increased. For example, at the slams, is it where it, it needs to be? Probably not. But is it moving in the right direction? Absolutely. When I played at Wimbledon 10 years ago, my first round prize money was £12,000. It's now nearing 60, I think. It's 50 something in the first round. <laughs> that's not inflation. <laughs> no, not in a world I've lived in. You know, so they are, you know, they have definitely been doing that. And and we found out that in comparison to other sports, we were very, very low in terms of the percentage of revenue that went to the athletes. And, you know, I, I, so I'm kind of, I'm on board with a lot of it. And, you know, I'm very passionate about there being more money for players ranked between 100 and 300. Absolutely. So I'm not, that's why I'm not against what they're doing, because I'm not against ultimately what they want in that sense it feels like such an own goal though 
with everything we've been through and the talk during the pandemic of the tours coming together and working together and we have the show Tennis United that Vasic Bospisil was was part of, it feels like a real own goal not to bring the WTA in, especially with everything that, for example, Naomi Osaka has done recently to make this decision. And then they've come out and said, oh, no, 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 the WTA, they will be involved at a future stage. But why at a future stage? It just feels that... If they wanted maximum publicity, if they wanted maximum support, maybe they don't care. Maybe Djokovic, Pospisil, Isner, whoever is heading up this group, if it's just two or the three of them, do not care. And this is what they are going to do. But I cannot for the life of me understand why they would not make this a joint venture unless it comes down to they don't believe that things should be equal and they want to keep things slightly separate. I think that is I think that's baffling. I agree. I think that was a massive mistake. And I think it's just happened because they've rushed it. I think they just rushed it. There was, there's been a lot of resentment for a while and it maybe hasn't been dealt with particularly well by, um, you know, the governing bodies. Uh, but for the ATP, we got a new CEO and it did, did seem like people were going to give him a chance in Gaudenzi in, in that, okay, well, let's see what we do. Like he's aware that there's a lot of resentment, a lot of frustration. Then we had Federer and Nadal joined the council and it all felt like, okay, right, this is all moving in the right direction. But then um, I think the players just felt that the communication around COVID and the the new rules and the moving of tournament dates and all that sort of thing just wasn't good enough. They found out that Roland Garros had moved on Twitter, but then I think, <laughs> to be fair, I think the ATP may have found out that Roland Garros had moved on Twitter um and you know that sort of thing and and then you know you kind of have put them all in this bubble together where there's nothing else to do apart from really chat to each other so I think it's just kind of gone quite quickly um and I think it's too quick and I could understand what they were saying so was it Djokovic saying well we just wanted to start with the you know with the guys because you know we know the guys and this conversation has been happening a lot when we've been traveling around on tour but I just think they should have waited and spent these two weeks maybe chatting with the women, and I agree, and getting them on board. I think it would have been far, far stronger um, to get some of those superstars on board. And, you know, it would have really made a, made a, a point. You know, they want more money for doubles players through the year. They want more money for players ranked 100 to 300. And they want more money for the women at the tour events throughout the year, the joint events throughout the year, Cincinnati is one of them where the women do not earn what the men do, even though they're on the same courts for the same ticket holders. Um, you know, the Canadian Open is another one, although they are split between Montreal and Toronto normally. But still, it's the same event run by the same people and the money's not the same. So, sure, I I just think that that would just make sense. You just package all of that up together, right? Yeah, I don't think it was not a good look to it, however this turns out. And we should say, and this is another thing that's moving all the time, that there was a letter signed by Nadal and Fedra, uh, among other council members, including Sam Query, to say, look, we've got to stay together. This isn't the right time. Since then, Sam Query has actually stepped down and he's now joined this association. I imagine another reason why Djokovic and, and co wanted to do it as quickly as they did is to have as many people around to get a that photo on court. You know they could that that looks good when you look around and you're seeing a, a Berrettini and a Schwartzman and the Isner etc cetera, etc. Cetera, while you've got everyone within this bubble, but there will be oh there's going to be a lot more to come yeah. on that. Oh. But I think I just I suppose 
by making this group for me it's making a statement almost that they feel like they're getting screwed over in some way like that that the ATP WTA ITF are not working for them that they're only working for sponsors and tournaments and all this sort of stuff and as I, as I said earlier, like I don't. I might be wrong on this, and I don't. I'm not privy to all the inf- information. I'm not on the council, so I don't know. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. And as I say, whilst yes, prize money was a bit rubbish for a long time, because you know the ITF events had not increased their amount of money from the 80s until only a couple of years ago. So a 10k in the 80s. <laughs> Or no, I think early nineties. A ten k in the nineties is still a ten k in in twenty seventeen. Was just ludicrous. <laughs> it's a completely different situation in terms of that prize money going out. So that was a big problem. Uh, the percentage of revenue at the slams was a big problem, and just in general. And I, and I was totally on board with that movement. But I kind of feel like that the organisers and the governing bodies have been on board with that. They've been trying to do that and it's actually been very difficult. So when it comes to prize money, for example, the ATP and WTA set a minimum amount for each level of event. And they say, if you're going to run an ATP 500, the minimum prize money you can hand out is this amount. And that's it. You can have more if you want. (laughs) That's fine. But this is the minimum. And so that's where, for example, in Cincinnati and in, in the Canadian Open, um, we have the differences because there's a different minimum for those events. So it's much lower. I think it's actually about half for the women as the minimum event, the minimum prize pool as it is for the men. Um, and so that that's causing the problem. So the trouble is, is that for the WTA, they set those rules, but the higher they make the cost the more the tournament has to pay for it and tournaments will fold. So I know that, for example, in the UK, Edgebaston, for example, was bumped up to this bigger event and they had this big investment into the facilities and it was a premier event. And each year, the prize money demand is higher and higher and higher for the LTA to fork out for this tournament. And, you know, it's tough for these these tournaments to make money for all of them, whether it's men or women. It's it's hard for them. So, the the drive for sort of equal prize money is a great one, but you do have to weigh it up with like what can these tournaments afford? <laughs> it's it's very difficult. So it, it's not kind of as straightforward. And it's the same even with Cincinnati and with the Canadian Open. It's very easy to say well the men are making double what the women are, but. It, they're still meeting the, the minimum requirements. So it means that the tournament would have to just find that extra money. And do they have the money to do that? Maybe they do. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's not a good look, but it's a very tricky thing to negotiate. And whilst, yes, we're moving in the right direction. And as I know from the LTA events that are run on the grass, every year there's a significant increase because the WTA are trying to close the gap. But... It's really difficult. And then they managed to get an amazing deal in Shenzhen where it's $4.4 million for the winner. And you know, so that's more than any of the men have got because it just depends like how much money is available um, and that sort of situation. So it's not as straightforward as people think. And now we're in the midst of a global pandemic. So there'll be some tournaments doing everything they can just to survive. It's uh, well, look, We're going to see how this unfolds. Do you want to have a COVID chat or do you not want to have a COVID chat? <laughs> About the uh, the COVID in the bubble? The COVID in a bubble within a bubble within a bubble. The bubble within the bubble. There are now separate bubbles within the bubbles of the bubble. The bubble of the bubble seems pretty intense. 
I think it's from what we've heard. And right? I think it feels from those initial talking to players, hearing from players and coaches saying it's great, and I'm playing golf and there's this food cart. It it starts to feel now they've been in there for a while and the reality of this life that is hotel site, hotel site, hotel site is starting to get to a few players. And now Benoit Pair, positive for COVID-19, a handful of players who were in close contact with him have been allowed to continue on in the tournament, which is quite possibly a separate debate and a separate podcast. But now they've had to sign new waivers, among them Christina Mladenovic, Adrienne Manorino. I think Richard Gasquet has been confirmed that he's one of those. Kirsten Flipkins are all in a separate bubble within a bubble within a bubble. Right. Is that how many layers there are to this bubble? I mean, their bubble is its so sort of singular. They're just in bubble wrap. I mean, they That's are. It. They're just walking around. I mean, they should be, shouldn't they? They, they have to go in back doors into their hotel. When they're in what the hotel, giant, the giant see-through spheres that people kind of roll around like little hamster wheels. You can't roll one tennis of the, like, players around in, bubble. in hamster spheres, can you? Oh, look, there they are. They're the ones that came in contact with Benoit Pair. There you go. You <laughs> could just get, run around the place. They get rolled big down enough. to their practice court. But they are back doors into hotel, only in the hotel room. They have to get separate transport, get themselves onto site, play on a court probably far away with different balls. They can't use the gym. Back they go. And, you know, on one hand, yes, that is very, very difficult. But on the other hand, surely they've got to be grateful and very lucky that they're still in the tournament. Well, quite. Because if that had been Cincinnati, one imagines they would have been pulled out. Because that's what happened to Delian and, and Pella. Yeah, who have now since come out and said, well, this is crazy. Everything we went through for for where we are now and these guys are still able to play in the tour I think it was what was it there was a big game of cards in the hotel reception masks on playing cards that was largely the people's contact with Benoit Pair, right yes what do you think do you think they should have just been pulled no I don't I don't I just I'm sure they did think it through but they just no one was clear on anything everybody was kicking off about Delian and Pella the first week because they were saying well that's not that wasn't our understanding of it. So the players, you know, look, if you're going to be super duper strict, um, and we've seen that in other sports of people being pulled out, you're off the team, you can't play in this because you you left the hotel or whatever, you've broken the rules. That's fine, but you just need to know, like, you just need to know what you're dealing with. But what we do know is we're dealing with one of the most infectious, infectious diseases there ever has been. Yes. And that is something you don't want to mess around with. You don't want to mess around with it. And I hope that it does not um, present itself in some more positive tests i would recommend everyone listen to the latest behind the racket podcast with noah and mike because it was noah that brought this to everyone's attention about the people who've been in contact with parents so it's a really good listen so if at the moment you're trying to soak up as much tennis as you can during the open then definitely have listened to those guys and ncr with ben they're doing i think he's doing daily ones so he's getting all the latest and all the all the bits and pieces now normally at this point I'd be like I've got to go there's sort of children I've got to do stuff I mean I haven't because we're not on air for a few hours but I'm still in search I'm remotely searching for school uniform because the boys go back tomorrow and I'm still school uniform short as in Ah, literally short I mean literally short okay they can go back in shorts They can go back in shorts, but the jumper needs to be a bit longer than it currently is. So, <laughs> well, good. so good luck with that. I've got a, I've got a few hours. I feel like this is like a challenge, Annika. Are you too young for that? When no, she used to I'm, run around. Well, I am too young for it, but I know what it is. Yeah. 
yeah okay I'm sounding old now but that's my my challenge for today before we go on air a little bit later and then we're gonna it's weird we keep recording remotely because the tournaments we work at either people don't put us working together or in this case you're coming up at the end of the week when it would have been too late yeah we're not allowed to be together no I'm coming up tomorrow I will be with you Yay. tomorrow Yay! And so, people yeah, can listen wait. listen to the podcast, uh, and we'll be together tomorrow. We're not together today, and then, as I say, it's it's not a result service, but we try and just give you as much as we can from what's gone on, and there's an awful lot going on. And uh, yeah, I look forward to us doing a little bit of work together. Yes, I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye. Bye. Bye.